Hi, I'm Ari Gordon, Director of U.S. Muslim-Jewish Relations at AJC. Right now, the Jewish people need an intensified commitment from each of us. History has taught us that when good people are silent, evil can flourish. It's up to us to make our voices heard. That's why I'm proud to be working with our partners in the Muslim community to advance critical hate crimes legislation that seeks to protect people of all faiths and backgrounds. I hope you'll join us by raising your voice and supporting all of AJC's vital work around the world. If you give before December 31st, your gift and impact will be doubled. And now here's a word from the Times of Israel. Hey everyone, I'm Sarah Tuttle Singer, the new media editor at Times of Israel, and I'm so excited to tell you about our Times of Israel community that we've recently launched. This is a tremendous opportunity for behind-the-scenes insight, a place where we can get to know each other better, where we'll have live discussions with some of our leading journalists and our founding editor, David Horowitz. The Times of Israel's community is like having a backstage pass to your favorite show. I hope you'll sign up, you'll join us and be part of our community. And in order to do so, all you have to do is read an article on Times of Israel. And there at the bottom, we have a link so that you can be part of this really exciting initiative. Thank you so much. And welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. There were four huge stories in the Jewish community this week with President Trump's executive order on anti-Semitism, the anti-Semitic shooting in Jersey City, New Jersey, elections in the United Kingdom, and news of new elections in Israel. I spoke with Esther Offenberg, the president of the Union of Jewish Students of the United Kingdom, about how British Jews are feeling after that election. Manya, who did you speak with this week? I talked to Raoul Woodliffe, the chief political correspondent for The Times of Israel, about the next step in Israel's electoral process. They are facing the third election in less than a year. I also spoke with Mark Stern, the chief legal counsel for AJC, about a new executive order signed by President Trump this week that aims to combat anti-Semitism on college campuses. And stick around at the end for our weekly Shabbat Table Talk, which includes some of our thoughts about this week's tragedy in New Jersey. Let's hit the show. The Conservative Party in the UK scored a landslide victory last night, the likes of which haven't been seen in a generation. I spoke with Esther Offenberg, the president of the British Union of Jewish Students, to understand how the Jewish community is feeling this morning in the United Kingdom. Esther, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Now, let's start with the central question here. How are British Jews feeling this morning? I think this morning was a very interesting outcome for a lot of British Jews. I'm not sure a lot of people expected the Conservatives to win by such a huge margin. Uh, but at the same time, it was a ve- these elections were very tough for British Jews. It was very tough for a lot of them to make the decision of who to vote for. And I'm sure many took a few more minutes in the voting booth this time on where they're going to put their little cross. So I think it's a very mixed landscape. 
Well, that's really interesting, Esther, because we in America had kind of been, I think many of us have been watching with concern, seeing these polls about, you know, what a large number of British Jews would consider even leaving their homes in the UK and moving elsewhere if labor would have won. Are are you saying that that was not largely reflected in your social networks and among the the young people that you uh, interface with regularly? No, definitely. If if I could show you my social media feed and a lot of other young British Jews' feed, social media feeds, you would have seen a lot of the same, which is people just kind of pleading and to raise the the issue of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, but also in general. So a lot of people, some people also say, oh, please don't vote for Labour because anti-Semitism, but also a lot of people who were maybe just more left-leaning and kind of used to see Labour as their home find themselves suddenly in that difficult situation of just being a bit homeless and not really knowing where they fall on the political spectrum, didn't really relate to any party. Mm. And so just wanted voters in general to be aware of, listen, we are here, Jews are here, and we are facing anti-Semitism. The Labour Party has had several, has had a quite significant history of uh, anti-Semitism over just the past couple of years. Um, so please, please take that into account when you cast your vote. You know, there's a there's a narrative that old people vote for conservatives and young people vote for labor. First of all, do you think that that's accurate? And second, would you say that old young divide exists in the Jewish community as well? I think overall, it is, uh, yeah, that is kind of a classic picture, which I guess on campuses, you could see a reflection of that. But again, because of the changing, I guess, appeal of all the parties over the past couple of years through Brexit, through anti-Semitism, this has all changed people's stances. And I guess has everyone had to reconsider where they feel they would be represented best, but not even best in a good way, but just where could they have a little part of their voice heard? Would you say that the main like headline from the Jewish community in this election is, you know, we dodged a bullet or does that kind of ambivalence that you were talking about before, does that still remain, you know, at the end of the day, you can only be happy with the outcome or sad with the outcome? Which do you say Mm -hmm. the community picks? I think if you gave a kind of public statement that um, organizations have been putting out and also just the kind of the way you hear people speak is... uh, kind of just hoping for the best now and, you know, hoping that Boris Johnson will also, um, you know, respect the Jewish community and take them take us into account with everything and I will not really address the issue of anti-Semitism, just also generally in society. Um, but at the same time, that ambivalence is still very strongly there. But the Jewish community is a beautiful pool of diverse opinions and diverse people but I don't think you can really categorize that into one definite answer. Uh, myself, for example, I really don't know how to feel because um, I'm actually European. I'm not British. So I um, I couldn't even cast my vote this year. Uh, so I really didn't know how to feel about all of this. But on the one hand, the issue of Brexit is really affecting me. But on the other hand, the issue of anti-Semitism also really affects me. So I couldn't even tell you from my own perspective how I really feel this morning. I woke up and I was just in more of a mood of, you know, oh, this is interesting. I guess we will see how what to what how to how we're gonna go from here. And it's gonna be really interesting how that all plays out over the coming weeks and months. 
Indeed. Well, thank you, Esther. And we here uh, in the American Jewish community are uh, hoping for brighter days ahead for uh, for you all in, in the UK. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This week, President Trump signed an executive order to combat the rise of anti-Semitism on college campuses by withholding federal dollars from schools that don't stop discrimination against Jews. Here in the studio to explain why this executive order is on firm legal footing and how it might curb the rise of anti-Semitism on campuses is Mark Stern, chief legal counsel for AJC. Welcome, Mark. Hi. It's good to be here again. So let's start by spelling out the federal civil rights law on which this executive order is based. The executive order rests on Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Broadly speaking, Title VI prohibits beneficiaries of federal funding from discriminating or allowing discrimination to take place in connection with the program. Unlike other provisions of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, however, Title VI does not specifically ban discrimination on the basis of religion. Um, The bans on employment discrimination, for example, include religion, but the ban on discrimination in federally funded programs does not. Why not? That was a deliberate decision in 1964 because Congress was concerned that if it included religious discrimination, it would sweep in, for example, religious groups that operated social service facilities, nursing homes, hospitals, and the like, would not be able to continue to operate as they had been, uh, Hmm. giving mild preferences to their own constituents, running programs that were uh, comfortable for their constituents but would make others feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So standard civil rights law would say that that's illegal. So therefore, Congress just avoided that thicket and left religion out. So now we come to the early part of this century— And Jews find that on college campuses for the first time in a long time, they're being made to feel very uncomfortable in the same way that women feel uncomfortable in comments, for instance, about their bodies. Mm -hmm. And they went to the Department of Education and said, help us. And the Department of Education says, ooh, we're sorry, but Title VI doesn't include religion, and Jews are a religious group. We can't help you. Mm. Under pressure from groups like the American Jewish Committee, the Department of Education rethought. And they said, well, Jews are not only a religious group, but they're also an ethnic group. They have a common national origin, have an ethnic identity. And under that rubric, we can protect them. Mm -hmm. And so the second Bush administration decided to adopt that theory and apply the law to some forms of anti-Semitism against Jews. They would not protect, for instance, comments about Jewish religious practice because that would be religion. But about Jewish ethnic identity, they were prepared to protect. And at least in conversations back and forth, they acknowledged that some of that anti-Semitism that would be barred by the order, by the statute under this interpretation, would include some forms of anti-Israel activity, but it was left nebulous as to what that might be. Okay. When the Obama administration came in, there was pressure to rescind that definition administration looked at it again and said, no, no, that instruction is correct. We will apply it and said it's no different than the way we would treat Kurds or Muslims and and the Sikhs and several other groups where religion and ethnicity overlapped. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are. A year ago, the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights announced that they would be applying the international Holocaust definition of anti-Semitism to these complaints. And all that the executive order does essentially is lend the president's prestige to what was already 
the Department of Education's policy for deciding these cases. Okay. Okay. So now the chatter on social media, when they see Jews identified as a race or a nationality, some people think that itself is borderline anti-Semitic. So first of all, it has nothing to do with the executive order. Yesterday, the same criticism could have been made but wasn't Mm -hmm. about the Bush order and the Obama decision. So it seems to me that much of this criticism is more about President Trump Uh, than it is about the substance mm -hmm. of the order. It's an old debate amongst Jews going back at least 200 years, whether we are an ethnic group, a nation, only a religious grouping. And the fact is, in modern America, clearly we are both. In the AJC's latest poll of American Jews, released last September, Mm -hmm. 41%, the largest single cohort in the group, identified as secular. Mm-hmm. There is the Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist, secular. I think then there's another category. 41%, the largest single grouping, say they're secular. Well, if they're secular, <laughs> then you can't invoke a religious rubric to get you. And what holds us together? What is an Orthodox Jew and a, and a secular Jew hold in common? Well, it's ethnicity. Right, right. And, and so it's not really a far leap. It's the way we live our lives. It's the way the poll data shows. So how does this executive order address the BDS movement that's been bubbling up on college campuses and some of the protests that we see? Well, first of all, the order says that it doesn't affect First Amendment protected speech. Okay. So even leaving aside the fact that no executive order can override the Constitution, the order itself incorporates the First Amendment into the standard to be used. So anything that is in fact protected speech will remain protected, order or no order. I don't think anybody believes that the order, and they shouldn't believe, and we would reject any effort to use the executive order and its predecessors to silence all criticism of Israel, all discussion of of Palestinian rights. All that stuff remains protected. The BDS movement's a more mixed bag. Mm -hmm. Some of it is deeply anti-Semitic. Only nation, the only ethnic state that's not permitted is the Jewish ethnic state. That sounds like one set for, one rule for everybody and another rule for the Jews. That sounds an anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. So there will be some forms of BDS activity that may conceivably, I mean, one has to look at an entire context, be subject to the order. By the way, the order, it should be understood, the order doesn't say you can't say those things. It's only when you create a hostile environment. And the general rules for hostile environment are that an occasional comment or something that's clearly meant as political, not an attack on somebody, is not a hostile environment. So even if it comes within the rubric of the definition, and even if somebody decides to apply it that way, you still have to meet the standard of creating a hostile environment, which under federal law is severe, pervasive, and objectively unreasonable. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of starts between here and there. What it does do is say the most extreme forms, the most scurrilous forms, of support for BDS, the most scurrilous attacks on Israel, may be subject to these requirements, which require basically universities to intervene to make sure that this environment doesn't exist. It's not a panacea to solve everything that bedevils Jewish students on campus. Mm -hmm. So did anything change on Wednesday when President Trump put his pen to paper at that Hanukkah party and signed this executive order? Yes and no. Um, No, in the sense that Jews have been regarded as a protected class under some circumstances since 2004. Um, No, since 2004, some forms of anti-Israel activity have been acknowledged, at least in theory, as being subject to this prohibition. 
know since September of 2018 when the department on its own decided they would apply the international, the working definition of anti-Semitism. And yes, in the sense that a presidential directive energizes bureaucracies. Mm. Um, There's some indications, not at the political levels, but at the career types, have not regarded anti-Semitism, particularly in anti-Israel formulations, as a matter of high priority for the office. They have, you know, the the traditional uh, race, gender, disability claims, those are of interest to the staff. Mm-hmm. In our meetings with him over the years, there's a sense there's some resistance from the career types. And when the president puts his prestige on the line, that usually tells the bureaucracy they need to take it seriously. It also is a signal to universities, which observing bureaucratic behavior know which types of complaints are going to generate a response and which are not. Mm -hmm. And now the university community, because that's who this is aimed at, is on notice that the president is watching, his political appointments are watching, and this is now a form of potential risk of loss of federal funds they need to worry about. Instead of you know, they'll never do anything about it. It's easier to leave the students alone than to rile the waters because we have nothing at stake. Now they have something at stake. Interesting. Mark Stern, thank you so much for joining us and explaining all of this. Thanks very much. On March 2nd, Israelis will head to the polls again, the third election in less than a year for Israel, Oh, just the next chapter in the Israeli political drama. And here to explain it all is Raoul Woodliff, the chief political correspondent for the Times of Israel. Raoul, welcome. Hi. How's it going? Good. Thanks for joining us. So take us back to the stroke of midnight Thursday morning and tell us what happened and why. Well, midnight on Thursday was really the end of a very long process that we've been going through since the second election in September After that election, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was given the first opportunity to try and form a coalition. He failed, and then Benny Gantz had another opportunity. He also failed. And then we went into this unprecedented period in Israeli political history, whereby every Knesset member has the opportunity to recommend their colleagues to be the person to form a government. They can put forward names, put forward signatures, and... They had 21 days to do so, and if by midnight on Thursday night they had uh, recommended, a majority of the 120-seat Knesset had recommended one candidate, they would have been given the opportunity to form a government. That didn't happen, which meant that we automatically were sent to elections. And so it really is the end of this long process, and in fact it's not the end of the process just that started in September. It's obviously gone back to the April election, and all the way back, to last December when the Knesset first dissolved itself to set that first election. Okay. And so Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, he may not actually run in the third election if he loses a primary challenge later this month, correct? Yeah, well, he has uh, a his first real um, challenge in 14 years uh, coming up on uh, December the 26th. Okay. Uh, Gideon Saar is his opponent in that Likud party primary. Tell us a little bit about Mr. Saar. Well, Gideon Saar is a popular Likud minister. He was first brought into politics by Benjamin Netanyahu himself as his cabinet secretary in 1999 when he was first prime minister. He has built an impressive political career. He served as the education minister and as the interior minister. He's very popular within the Likud 
and outside of the Likud as well. He took a break from politics in 2014, and it was widely considered that his break was in order to make a political comeback to challenge Netanyahu. When he did come back in 2017, he didn't immediately challenge Netanyahu. He said he'll support him. He's there for the post-Netanyahu era. He wants to lead the party after Netanyahu. Given the situation, the ongoing political deadlock, he came out two months ago and said, I'm ready. I'm ready to challenge Netanyahu now. And he's now building his campaign around saying that Netanyahu can't continue because he's failed to form a government twice and he won't be able to again. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to note that in Gideon Saar's language so far, he's not criticizing Netanyahu for those indictments against him, three criminal indictments in three separate cases. He's just saying that he can't continue to be prime minister because he simply can't form a coalition. Now, is he not mentioning those criminal indictments because they really don't factor much into this third election? I mean, how much do they matter? The indictments are going to matter a huge amount, and really the whole elections are going to be about this. I uh, wrote a while ago regarding the first election that Netanyahu wanted to turn it into a trial by combat. If anyone is uh, aware of Game of Thrones, there's two ways of getting cleared of a crime. You can take a, uh, a trial by judge where you're facing a judge and you put your case forward, or you can have a trial by combat where you literally fight the person making a claim against you. And if you win, then you come out as having won your case. It seems very much so that that's what Netanyahu is going to... He wanted in the other elections, and certainly is going to be now. In less than a month, he has to announce whether he wants to seek immunity from prosecution via the Knesset parliamentary immunity laws. And it's very clear that he'll be putting forward to the public to say, this is me, you can decide now, you, the public, will decide. If you want me to continue, give me enough seats so that I can continue and effectively get that immunity. Mm-hmm. Wasn't he toying with the idea of not requesting immunity? Wasn't it kind of like a, for lack of a better term, a Hail Mary uh, to form the coalition in the end? Well, this last week has been full of spin from both sides because everyone has really seen that we were on the way to elections. It was almost certain that elections would happen. And so both sides, Blue and White and Likud and the other parties, were starting to prepare their political campaigns for the election and really playing the blame game. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that, that Benny Gantz said in the final week was, Netanyahu, give up on this quest for immunity and then maybe we can join you in a government. It's unclear whether they really intended that or whether they wanted to get Netanyahu to make a declaration. There were reports on yesterday, on Thursday, just before the deadline that Netanyahu was considering it. It's also unclear whether that was true or whether that was some sort of spin to make it seem like he might have been willing to soften his position with the electorate. But it's certainly going to be something that plays a key part of this election. Mm -hmm. Now, what role does Avidor Lieberman play? Yes, Avigdor Lieberman, the leader of the Israel Beitenu party, someone else that was brought into politics by Benjamin Netanyahu originally uh, as his chief of staff or the person that managed his office a long time ago, also when he was first prime minister. His party has for a long time played the role of kingmaker. Mm. In this election or in these last two elections, he's basically become the role of kingbreaker um, <laughs> by preventing Netanyahu from being able to form a government. He said all along that he wants to form a unity government and that Blue and White and Likud need to come together and create a government without various other factions, particularly the ultra-Orthodox factions who he has opposed 
strongly with a strong secularist platform. Mm-hmm. Again, he's saying the same thing. He's saying that he wants a unity government after this election. It might, according to polls at the moment, he would again hold that key role to be able to decide who could win between the two sides or whether to force a unity government. But his political capital is perhaps waning because many people see him as one of the key people that caused this third election. Mm, By being the one holdout, for example, in the first election that prevented Netanyahu. Exactly. Well, in both elections, really. In both both times, he could have formed a government with Netanyahu easily. Okay. Now, you said that indictments may be a central matter in this third election. What about the issue of annexation? Will that come up and be a central issue? Netanyahu said throughout the negotiations that he needed a period of time as prime minister first so that he could secure the annexation of the Jordan Valley, a key swathe of land within the the West Bank. It's a difficult sell for him in this election because Blue and White have said that they support remaining in the Jordan Valley forever. In their platform, they say that any eventual peace plan would include the Jordan Valley as part of Israel. But they've said that they don't support unilateral moves at this stage. Um, So they wouldn't support an annexation. It's something that I think will come up in the election, but I can't see it being a central point. I think that Netanyahu's We've seen in the past that his campaigning has often uh, gone low, gone for the low blow Mm. and uh, not focused so much on policy. Mm -hmm. Um, And we may see that again. Okay. Now, Mahmoud Abbas has called for Palestinian elections. I know he's called for those elections before. No date has been set. What is the likelihood from your vantage point that these elections will actually take place and that the date set could coincide with this March 2nd election in Israel? Well, we're seeing increasing moves towards a Palestinian election for the Palestinian Authority. Like you said, no date has been set and there's been announcements in the past that there would be elections. But at the moment, it does seem like it's moving slowly, but perhaps surely towards an election. Uh, If the two coincided, it would be a very interesting uh, phenomenon to see both taking place. Mm -hmm. Um, Criticism is often voiced at the time of an Israeli election that Palestinians don't have a voice in those Israeli elections. They can't vote in an Israeli election, but they vote for the Palestinian Authority, which hasn't had elections for a long time. If the two took place, you know, coincided uh, or or very similar dates, it would be very interesting to have two very different campaigns for very different positions taking place side by side and uh, even on top of each other in some cases. Yes. Interesting is an understatement. (laughs) I think you would be very busy. (laughs) Raul, thank you so much for uh, explaining all of this to us. And uh, best of luck until March 2nd. We may talk to you again. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us this week at our Shabbat table is Yaakov Schwartz, the deputy Jewish world editor at the Times of Israel. Yaakov, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? So, uh, Sefi, I'm actually kind of a bit of a heretic these days. So it's entirely possible that uh, instead of being at a Shabbat table, I might be somewhere at like a pork and cheeseburger buffet somewhere. But uh, I love it. If I were at a Shabbat table, I would probably be talking about uh, you know. There's the Yiddish expression uh, "as fair to sign a yid." It's hard to be a Jew, and you know, as far as Yiddish expressions go, 
I think that this one's as relevant today as any of them. So I'm splitting my time between Berlin, where I live, and Budapest, where my girlfriend lives. Huh. And from here, yeah. And uh, it's, it's interesting because I'm able to see some of the challenges firsthand that Jews in the diaspora are facing today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I wasn't able to do from the comfort of Israel, where we are secure, we're a majority, and uh, it feels completely natural to, to be Jewish there. And, you know, I did experience some anti-Semitism growing up in Buffalo, New York in the 80s and the 90s. But, you know, for the most part, these days, it's been pretty comfortable. I was thinking today, of course, we've all been thinking about the tragic shooting that happened at the uh, kosher supermarket in New Jersey, which as of now, I'm not sure it's conclusive, uh, whether it's anti-Semitic in nature, but it's entirely possible. And it wouldn't be surprising. Mm -hmm. And I have. I have experienced. I haven't experienced firsthand, but being in Berlin and in Budapest, as things kind of unfold as they are these days, is is interesting. I was in Halle the weekend after, the Shabbat after the shooting there. My girlfriend isn't Jewish, but she's actually starting to deal with anti-Semitism in her own small way just by virtue of being with me. So when she mentions me, she might get an anti-Israel comment. People might say... uh, You know, so what is he, a Zionist, as if that's a bad thing? Or they might just ask her if I love Bibi or any other number of uh, stereotypical anti-Semitic things. Mm -hmm. And she came to me and she asked me, she started asking me questions about how she might better answer these kind of comments in the future. And I felt really bad about it in a way because I know it's not my fault, but part of the reason she's dealing with this is because of me. And of course, I'm Jewish, so I love to feel guilty, and that's, you know, how it goes. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) On the one hand, I'm sure she knows what she's getting into, but on the other hand, is it really possible for anybody to know what they're getting into? Yeah. It's a great illustration of how really hatred of Jews is not something that just affects the Jewish community. It really does affect all of society. So I really appreciate you sharing that, Yaakov. Sefi, what are you going to be talking about this week? Well, Manya, I am a proud Jersey boy. I was born in Westwood, raised in Fairlawn, and went to school in New Milford and West Orange. When I ventured across the river to Manhattan for college, I still came home regularly and even spent the summer after my junior year interning in Newark City Hall. It was there that I learned of and bought into the friendly rivalry between Newark, New Jersey's largest city, and Jersey City, which ranks number two. But no one is thinking of silly competitions today. After Jersey City apparently became the site of the latest anti-Semitic mass shooting on our shores. That's the logical conclusion of the news, still somewhat vague and cryptic as we record on Wednesday, that the two individuals targeted the kosher grocery store, as J.C. Mayor Stephen Phillips said this morning. And it's a further reminder of the complex nature of anti-Semitism, as the perpetrators are apparently members of the Black Hebrew Israelites, a hate group of radical African Americans who view themselves as the true descendants of biblical Jews and have a long history of harassing Jews. So at my Shabbat table this week, my friends and I will once again be puzzling through all the different forms and sources of Jew hatred, what we can do to fight them, and where we all go from here. It's not an easy conversation, to be sure, and there's no clear path forward. But this is the kind of conversation that we young Jews have to have as we prepare for 2020. Manya, what about you? 
Well, Sefi, Yaakov, I live in New Jersey now, and the Garden State, the place where we moved to raise our two kids in a peaceful suburban neighborhood with good schools. But dropping my son off at school this morning was one of the hardest things I have done in a while, especially after that violence in Jersey City. My son came back twice for more hugs and kisses, and I couldn't help but wonder if he, too, was a little uneasy about letting the door close behind him. Listen, it's hard for any parent, regardless of their religious tradition. Um, My son had his winter concert Monday morning, and there was a police officer stationed at the entrance because the nearby high school had received a threat. But Jewish families especially, Yaakov, you touched on this, we can't escape the cloud that hangs above our heads every day, whether we're taking our kids to school, shopping at a kosher supermarket, or enjoying a winter holiday concert. Now, we probably won't talk about this fear at our Shabbat table with my two small children, but we will talk about that holiday concert, the one um, that my son had on Monday, my daughter's is coming up next week, Um, and in addition to the effusive praise we will shower upon my son for his performance, uh, the focus will be Hanukkah songs, or lack thereof. Yes, I'm ending this on a a cheerier note. Um, At my son's concert, one boy in the fourth grade band, presumably the one Jew, uh, played dreidel dreidel on his saxophone. And there was one Hanukkah song that sounded an awful lot like a Christmas carol about baby Jesus with new lyrics about a child of wonder on Hanukkah. Maybe listeners can clarify if that is an actual Hanukkah song. But the question I want folks to answer at the Shabbat table is what's better? No Hanukkah songs or, uh, you know, just a few secular winter tunes for those who don't celebrate Christmas, or carols adapted for the Jewish Festival of Lights. Listen, I prefer the former. (laughs) Um, Leave Hark the Herald Angels alone. Away in the Manger is a beautiful song. Sing it. Um, As long as you throw in some jingle bells and let it snow. I don't know if we will reach an agreement at my Shabbat table on this matter, um, but I can predict my daughter will be rehearsing her songs for next week's concert by dessert. Well, even if the weather outside is frightful, uh, I'm wishing a Shabbat Shalom to uh, each and every one of our listeners. Yes. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 